arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. This voyage opened up the last great ocean, created new trade routes, and revealed the true scale of our planet. It was a triumph of the human spirit, an epic tale of courage and endurance, starvation and mutiny, heroism and death. And it turned one man, Ferdinand Magellan, into one of the most celebrated explorers in the history of the world. I compare the first sea voyages of the great sailing vessels specifically the Magellan expedition in the opening of this episode, to the voyage of ESS-14 traveling across the extended gargantuan space between the nebula planet and the known portions of galactic command. Messages in both voyages take considerable time to send and receive, and the isolated planets or island and cities are like oasis in the cold darkness of space or the ocean. Even though the war has ended with the Antarians, Ross has to deal with a possible Antarian threat. It's funny how we humans, once we get in our minds that someone might be guilty of something, how we magnify that threat, probably taken from our early humanity and suspect anyone with a hint of guilt. Look at the Salem Witch Trials. As the voyage progresses, Ross gets an updated message from Dr. Ellison. It's like nothing Ross has ever heard before. Step aboard the long space voyage. Voyage 24, Galactic Command, The Nebula Planet by Robert P. Fitton, Episode 2, begins now. Chapter 6. Ross studied Nancy Burke anew as he entered the dining galley. Sebastian had not yet changed the window cambience and and Ross peered out over a dull street on some unnamed city on Theta Lyra. The gray-haired Sebastian greeted him with a smile from the preparation area. Ross held up his hand. Sebastian's voice, muffled by the coil hum and the people inside, still boomed across the eating area. Number five, the woman has it on the table. Ross gave him the thumbs up sign and walked over to Nancy. He pulled back the chair and looked into her glassy blue eyes, wondering whether she would really sell out to the Antarians. Her cutting a deal with the Antarians after the war's carnage made no sense. So tell me, how's life been on the mother's ship, Nancy? Ross dug into a thick slice of roast beef. Sebastian cupped his hand behind his ear. Ross looked up and smiled. Perfect, perfect, looks real. Bending, 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 and more bending. All I do is bend stories, she said, sipping on a balanced green supplement. You always wanted to be a bender. I wanted to be a bender since I was old enough to activate a viewing screen. My father was an instructor in languages and my mother also an instructor, but in politics. And my mother worked in a vegan school colony, said Ross, a general instructor. My father, John Sr was also in the command structure, just like his son. Your father's cover was a trading advisor, but he's really in the intelligence service. Well, 
that fact is not readily accessible, Nancy, said Ross, not happy that his father's intelligence work might become public. I don't think I ever told you that. You didn't. I have my sources, she said, smiling. I would appreciate, as I will venture that command would appreciate, that you leave that fact where it belongs, undercover. As I said, my mother was in politics. I know what to bend and what not to bend. Good. I need to make one other thing clear. No unauthorized transmissions on a Priority Explorer spaceship mission without the consent of the commanding officer or in the absence of the commanding officer, the present duty officer. Command Voyage Orders, Section 28. Transmissions during an Explorer spaceship voyage. Well, I'm impressed, he said as he thought. You and I have always been friends, Nancy. We think we know each other so well, but we've always talked about passing things. You're right. Going here, going there. Next you'll be telling me you speak 50 languages, said Ross, trying to bait her. Fourteen. I told you my father was a professor of languages on the Mothership Central Institute. I could have used you as an interpreter, Nancy, during the Antarian conflict. Ross looked for any change in her expression. Well, I could have done it. Antarian dialect was one of father's primary languages. He should have traveled to Antares. When we weren't at war, of course. My father went there several times, John. He was killed in the conflict less than a year ago. His transport vessel was caught in the middle of an attack. In war, there is no second guessing. I'm sorry. His vessel was vaporized. It's all in the group interview I had before being selected to travel on this mission. The war. The tears rose in his eyes as he thought about his best friend, Craig Duggan. How Craig had lost his life on a sky pilot ship Ross had ordered to attack the incoming Antarian vessels. Ross could still vividly see Craig's ship veering to the left toward the unseen Antarian courses below the outpost station. His ship was blasted from the sky before any Polonis adjustment could take place. Ross talked with Nancy for nearly an hour, learning more about her background than he had in all the time he had known her. But most of the useful part of the conversation involved her father's dealings with the Antarians. To travel so many times to such a dramatically different culture seemed unusual. He brought her back to her cabin and next headed directly toward the Metafact. The towering Mike Pfeiffer was treating a crewman in one of the side examining rooms. The crewman stood and saluted. Oh, John, for heaven's sake, said Pfeiffer, pushing the button for the privacy panel. Now, Ross gazed out a Cambian window to a vast spread of ocean and palm trees. Is this a new Cambian, Mike? Mary loaded 50 of them in there. A palm trees and ocean, a nice place to be. Pfeiffer's associate, Mary Kerinsky, passed outside. She gave him a wide grin and waved, and then entered another examining room. Well, I'm glad Kerinsky's on this voyage. What makes my job easier, said Pfeiffer. Ross heard a high-pitched noise, and then the panel came down like a guillotine. The crewman pretended to hold his throat. You got me, Commander. Ross smiled, but the hawk-nosed Pfeiffer shook his head. His voice was inconsistent with his classification at a level 20 defense proficiency, the stalker level. Routine strep. Not routine anymore. Thank you, Doctor. The crewman stood as he passed Ross and saluted again. Ross returned the salute and moved toward Pfeiffer. Mike, this voyage is going to be a long voyage. So I've been told, said Pfeiffer, putting his hands under the zap. The little box glowed green for just a few seconds, wiping out all microorganisms, and then shut off. 
Pfeiffer took out his red jumper and stuffed it in the disposal. Just where are we headed? Right now, Axiom Baroma 7. After that, you'll have to wait. They walked back into Pfeiffer's office. On the wall was an image captured by Lindy. It showed Ross being flattened by Pfeiffer in one of the defensive contests during Voyage 15. Do you have to keep that up there? Yup. Pfeiffer smiled and pushed the movement button. Now Ross had to endure the entire two-minute shot. He rolled his eyes and shook his head. Someday I'm gonna catch you, Mike. Level 14, he said, needling Ross's level of achievement. Level 14. Well, I want to set up some training. We're going to have to pass the time, and I want Alvarez involved in this. The normally calm Pfeiffer pushed his lips together and shook his head. Well, somebody should flatten her on her ass. I heard she was level 11, but then somebody should set her straight. Ross raised his brows. Are we a little itchy? She keeps complaining she can't sleep, and then she can't stay awake. Hey, she ought to just leave well enough alone. Regulating systems is all very fine, but enough is enough. She always comes in almost whispering, Oh, Dr. Pfeiffer, Dr. Pfeiffer. Well, let's get her out here for some defensive training. Ross watched as he was manoeuvred onto the floor on the wall image. Shut that damn thing off, will you? You hate losing, don't you, John? Who, me? You'd be a good match for her. You're going to love being transferred to the Andromedan Waste Sector, Mike. You will send booted messages to me, won't you? What else? You want something else, I can tell. You get that cat-like look in your eyes. Nancy Burke, what's her problem? Pfeiffer slowly moved his mouth in a circular motion. You know better than that, John. I can't give out a patient's personal medical record, even to you. Is she seriously ill? Pfeiffer turned and Ross grabbed his arm. You can't, you can tell me that. John, I can't have people thinking I'm just handing out confidential records. I suppose if she wanted me to know, she would have told me. No hard feelings? The only hard feeling I have against you, Pfeiffer, is losing on the mats. Don't fret. If this voyage is as long as you say it is, I should be able to bring you up to level 15. 15? I want 20, said Ross as he headed for the door. We'll see how Alvarez does. He stopped below the conveyor tube, and as he moved into the corridor, Nancy's masquerading as an Antarian spy was negated by her condition. She had an aura of mystery, but only because he saw her off and on over the years. He shook his head as if he were eliminating his suspicions and summoned the tube. As the tube approached, he pressed his lips and then pushed the button on his compact. Polonis, this is Ross. Yes, Commander. Keep Nancy Burke under surveillance. Acknowledged. Chapter 7. Ross ordered Lindy to send six separate AZ messages to command during the next few days concerning Nancy's condition and the spy situation. Most of the responses about Nancy were vague and did not answer the matter of her health, nor did they elaborate on the Antarian espionage. The lack of progress made Ross irritable, suspecting and rejecting dozens of people on board. Lindy conducted an extensive search of personnel records and attempted linking the crew members and the Antarians. Not until Ross informed Ebert ESS-14 security personnel were convening about the situation did the Admiral finally reply directly on the AC channel. Ross had finished a workout with Pfeiffer and Mariah Alvarez in the training room near Propulsion when a call from Lindy informed him of an incoming Ebert message. 
He made arrangements to meet Lindy aboard the external maintenance shuttle in ten minutes. Pfeiffer wiped his head with a towel. Well, she's not bad. I'd almost say she was holding back. He moved his shoulder around as if he had strained it. I think she's more than level 11, John. Interesting. I have to meet Lindy, he said, patting Pfeiffer on the shoulder. Pfeiffer called out as he moved across the room. You were good today, John. Level 20? No, but you're getting there. Ross smiled and put a towel around his neck as he walked into corridor B. Once in propulsion, he stepped up to the external maintenance conveyor and moved upward to the storage room above propulsion. The doors opened and he crossed a darkened area with red warning lights blazing over the fuel canister compartments. The shuttle was docked inside the airlocks. He trotted up a spiral staircase and opened the doors. Lindy, dressed in an orange external maintenance suit, was already inside and he sipped a cold drink. He handed Ross a drink and smiled as he closed the doors. We have to stop meeting like this, John. All communications and monitoring systems were shut down. A blue AZ field flashed on the viewer as the air rushed through the locks. Don't worry, they can't hear us. Like an archaic amusement park ride, they rolled atop the vessel near the wingspan. Ross again had an unobstructed view down ESS-14's neck into the spherical locus almost 250 meters away. It was a quiet area, except for the constant hum of the coils vibrating through the shuttle, but the proximity to the stars made it akin to floating freely through space. Six days out here and eight days to Baroma, and we still don't have direct orders, said Ross, shaking his head. We do now, John. The shuttle moved slowly under the stars, or at least an explanation. Okay, what have we got? I'm sick of this little game command is playing. Lindy put a small disc in the viewer and grinned. I think you should withhold comment till after you've heard what they have to say, John. Well, what's so funny? With the screen activated, Lindy pushed his own code and deactivated the scrambled signal. Security, level AZ, password, priority password. Password, 7th R Quanta, answered Ross. Clear. The entire command group was represented in this transmission, but it was Ebert who stood at the long table and spoke. Link security requires that you state your ship's weapons codes, he said. This copy without erasure will also be erased in 30 seconds if the code is not inputted. The image froze and Ross looked at Lindy. He's not taking any chances, is he? Code 1951-9-18, password Copernicus. Thank you, said Ebert, and the disk started again. There will be no convening of your security personnel without prior approval from this office. And here's the reason. Your mission to the Nebula planet represents the first mission to find Dr. Ellison. Secondly, it is the reason of Dr. Ellison's AZ dispatch to the Nebula planet that makes this mission potentially significant. Command received a message seven months ago from the expedition chief Randall Wilson that the body of a Zorker being 10,000 years dead had been located on the Nebula planet with a small number of artifacts. Damn it, I knew it. The importance of this event to humanity cannot be overstated. We sent Dr. Ellison and the general research team from Axian Baroma to verify and make an attempt to locate this being's place of origin. Was it the Nebula planet? Was it another planet in the system? We needed to find out answers before we had every rogue and space venturer converging on this remote region of space. Our problem, gentlemen, 
is that security has been broken. We don't know how, but the Antarians have become aware of the outpost party's discovery and may be involved in tapping technology out there. With the treaty signed, Admiral Gates and the group do not want a direct provocation leading to more hostilities. John, you have to determine if there are Antarian vessels out there, and if there is indeed, as Dr. Ellison hinted, an ancient knowledge that the Antarians might gain access to. We found that four command personnel had obtained some unusual currency vouchers on the mother ship. When their accounts were checked, we found that the computers had been altered. Very cleverly, of course. It took our people four days to find the tampering on the molecular level. When, the, when confronted, fighting broke out. That is when the conspirators were killed. One of them lived long enough to point the finger at the Antarians and mention the possibility of infiltrating Explorer spaceships. That is why we requested you check your onboard personnel. We apologize for the lack of detail in our message. I think you can understand why we chose that option. ESS-27 Nearing Axiom Baroma 7 had also undergone similar checks. Your first order of business, once you receive the sealed orders, will be to confer with Commander Donaldson before departure for the Nebula Planet. It is critical that you work together because of the distance factor. I don't have to remind you that messages to the mothership will take weeks to send and weeks to reply. You are totally on your own. Your decisions will be the decisions that matter. I will state one fact categorically. Any Antarian ships will be immediately destroyed. Consider their presence out there an act of war, John. There will be no intercept messages, no warnings. We are not only talking about first contact with the Zorker, we're talking about the Antarians misusing Zorker knowledge. Maybe this Zorker body found will remain a mystery, but it is a mystery we wish to keep within the security structure of Galactic Command. Word will leak out soon enough if the Antarians are involved. I would only ask you to be on battle alert status within your ship for the duration. Conspirators may not exist, but we don't take that chance. Fully cooperate with your counterpart on Axian Baroma, John. This mission could dwarf anything we did during the war. All command could be threatened if the Antarians gain the advantage. This disc will be destroyed. Confirmation signal of disc destruction will be sent. Good luck, John. The screen went to blue. Lindy pulled out the disc. Well, what do you think now, John? Relief? What do you mean, relief? I can face anything I have to, knowing what I'm facing. My only fears in life are the things I don't know. John, I don't think anyone on this vessel is involved with the Antarians, including Nancy Burke. I've traced her activities on the mothership during the last 60 days. There's nothing to indicate any contact with Antarian agents. Direct agents. Ross gazed out the transparency as they neared the outer hull above the locus. Direct agents would look like Antarians. The red eyes, the oversized muscular bodies, and the short mass of white hair. Obviously, if there was an Antarian on the mother's ship... Right, right, I understand. Agents, provocateurs. If Nancy or anyone aboard met with Antarian agents, Lindy, it would be impossible to track down because of lack of evidence. That's it. I'm not worrying myself silly for the rest of this voyage. I'm putting Kaczynski on alert. John. Ebert just ordered you not to convene security personnel without direct approval from his office. Ross smiled. 
while in the same breath he said I'd be totally on my own. After you leave Veroma, I mean, I agree with you, John. Sometimes command is too cautious. You and I have worked together too long to listen to everything coming out of command as gospel. Ross leaned back in his chair and put his hands behind his head. Then, officially stay out of it. Let Crutch and his people look for spies behind every planet and moon. No, I'll stand with you, O mighty one, said Lindy, shaking his head. Good. Now let's wait it out until we get to Baroma. The shuttle reached its maximum upward limit and began looping around the locus. Steve Donaldson is a good choice to be working with us. He's the only galactic commander with a decorations list longer than yours, John. Ross half grinned with the panel lights casting a green glow across his face. Well, we'll have to work on that. John, if this Zorka story is true, this ship, we're at a high point of human evolution if we make contact. Ross nodded and gazed into deep space as he tried to imagine that distant planet under the shadow of the nebular expanse, and then he inhaled and turned toward Lindy. Or, the Antarians want to continue the war. Chapter 8 Axian Baroma 7 was billed as a wild, untamed, aligned planet. Lindy, Kuczynski, Muldoon, Jim Morris, and Mariah Alvarez accompanied Ross and Nancy Burke on a high-speed terrain vehicle sweeping across the desert plains toward the central city, Navula. Near the surrounding rocky hills, the dirt was terraformed into selected domed oasis with connecting corridors containing lush plant life and palm trees. In Narula, they would confer with the planet's governor and have to wait for Steve Donaldson. Scans showed no sign of ESS-27, and Ross had boosted his own ship to full battle alert. Nancy looked out the window as they zoomed across the arid stretch. Where are all the rogues? I thought this was a planet of rogues. Where is ESS-27 is the more pertinent question. Ross panned the hot sands toward the distant angular chocolate mountains. This planet was established, if you can call it that, as an open society. Anyone could settle here and command because of the distance involved would send convicted rogues out here to fight amongst themselves. There's the governor who doesn't answer his frequency scans himself, but it's not the conventional aligned setup. You like things in order, don't you, John? She asked. No, I don't like things out of order, and this place is out of order. Things change, we all get civilized, said Lindy in a refined accent. I was out here 20 years ago, said Muldoon. They still carried unregistered drag beamers. People were getting shot all over the place. In those bars, you could get anything you wanted. And I bet you did, said Polonis through his compact speaker. Something you'll never experience, replied Muldoon. A non-cyber intelligence weakness. Muldoon mumbled something and they continued toward the city series of small colored structures appeared in the haze down the track, but nothing over a few stories high. The city, not domed and surrounded by high plains and some wider spreading trees below, maintained a unique isolation so far from the spaceport. The vehicle slowed and pulled up to a deserted arrival station platform. Ross stood. The outside hydraulic locks clicked and the door slid upward, and the hot dry air filled the train. He walked ahead with the others onto the concrete platform. The building's stucco walls were cracked with faded brown tiles missing from the roof. 
Several bearded men in red uniforms moved from the open archways. Polonus verified their orders and everyone filed into the shade of the station, past the abandoned merchant alcoves to the waiting skimmer shots parked on the cobblestones out front. Those skimmers had no internal air systems and the hot dusty air blew against Ross's face. Children and adults tried to sell trinkets and novelties from the dirt-swept alleys as they passed. Three feet above the ground they finally turned onto a clean concrete roadway leading to a blue-domed weathered stucco structure in front of a brick-lined square. He followed the guards up chipped steps and into the building. Other men saluted as the breeze crept through the open windows. The governor's office was located up a curving, worn, precast stairway on the second floor and overlooked the plains, stretching to the mountains. They were brought lime-flavored drinks and seated around a large, scuffed wood table. A yellow and red flag with an unknown insignia ruffled in the warm air. A few moments later, a short, frumpy man, dressed in a poorly fit green and gray day suit, opened at the chest, bounded into the office. Ross reminded himself that formal attire was probably frowned upon. With a modulating voice, he moved down the line, shaking hands. Good afternoon, good people of Ship 14. I am Governor Wilfred Busmith. Pleasure to meet you all. Yes, pleasure. Uh, Governor Busmith, uh, we're supposed to meet Commander Steve Donaldson and his officers, said Ross. I tried to convey that to your aides who answered my calls to you. Oh, yes, yes, uh, I am aware of such things. Well, where is he? Oh, didn't you know? asked the Governor. His whimsical attitude annoyed Ross. Ross stepped forward and looked the heavy Busmith in the eye. I don't think you understand that I'm on a serious mission here, Busmith. Where's the second command ship? Where's Donaldson? Well, we, we were informed of the change that he was to proceed on course without you. What? shouted Ross. I have no such orders. Well, Commander Bragg's... Bragg? asked Ross, almost choking on his words. Jack Bragg was one of the worst explorer spaceship commanders in fleet history and had come close to getting busted a dozen times. Jack Bragg? Yes, Commander Bragg. He was here four days ago. The governor seemed flustered. He and his people transferred some case that Donaldson was supposed to give you. Uh, where is Donaldson now? asked Kaczynski. With Bragg, I guess, said the governor. Did I do something wrong? Commander Bragg told me he was in charge, and I didn't think Donaldson would release the disc without proper authority. Ah, damn, shouted Ross, turning to Lindy. Jack Bragg. So that's how the Antarians are doing it, paying a subcranian mutant like Jack Bragg to do their dirty work. I can't believe this, said Lindy. Polonis, get this conversation on an AZ channel right now to Admiral Ebert's office. How long will the message take? Oh, three days out, three days back, said the governor. Did I do something wrong? Governor, were there any Antarians with Commander Bragg? Asked Ross, his fists clenched. He could count too many incidences, even from before the war, where Jack Bragg had jeopardized ship's personnel or when he had gotten away with marginal behavior. For a command to choose Jack Bragg as commander bordered on the ludicrous. I want to know where Donaldson went.
Polonis's voice sounded on his compact speaker. A message has been sent, Commander. Thank you, Polonis. Ross bared his teeth. Now, Mr. Governor, why haven't we scanned ESS-27? ESS-27? Damn it, Governor, didn't it occur to you that Bragg might not be in command of that vessel? Well, no. Commander Bragg seemed like such a nice man. Con man, said Ross, throwing his hand in the air. Lindy, we need command ships out here. Ross shook his head and stomped toward the open window. He stared over the hazy plains and Jack Bragg's fat face bubbled into his thoughts. Then he turned quickly. Let's get out of here right now. Boosmith followed Ross across the room. Let me make it up to you. Uh, perhaps dinner or... How do you make up and explore a spaceship? We have a galactic emergency here, Governor, and you want to offer us dinner. It was just a thought, he answered, shrugging his shoulders. Crutch, I want two of your people down here and get a couple other crewmen. They'll have to stay behind and conduct an investigation. We damn well need to know whether any Antarians were down here or aboard ESS-27. Yes, sir. Kuczynski stepped in front of them and called the ship on his compact. And Lindy, extend full battle alert. Yes, sir. Ross shook his head again, looking at the governor one final time, and then he led the others out of the room. They raced behind him down the back stairs. Jack Bragg had no authority being out here or commanding ESS-27. It was still unclear whether he had hijacked ESS-27 for the Antarians. The same driver sat at the skimmer and raised his brow as Ross approached. Once everyone had piled inside, Ross ordered him back to the station and had Polonis make arrangements to return by train to the SAV at the spaceport. He gazed out the window and grit his teeth. Wasted trip. The SAV's smaller conventional thrusters boosted them into the atmosphere and Kuczynski guided them back into orbit. Ross, not even using a restraining belt, looked out the window. The trip to this dry brown planet, now lined blue against the sky, proved useless. Busemith's lackadaisical attitude angered Ross, and the governor had violated command security by not informing someone of Bragg's stunt. He had a good mind to subject Busemith to a full investigation. The thought of Antarians reaching the Zorka first and imparting their warped perspective and inaccurate portrayal of their own civilization could change galactic history. Contacting a Zorka civilization might gain them access to superior knowledge and a strategic advantage. Hopefully the body found on the Nebula planet was a relic from the past and any Antarians would flee when command ships arrived. But his gut feeling told him the whole thing was of vital strategic importance, and Jack Bragg was right in the center of it. Who is Jack Bragg? asked Nancy. He turned, tightening his neck muscles, not knowing where to begin. Jack Bragg. The abnormality to the statistics. A man with no potential, no sense of duty, and lacking in rational judgment. Can I quote you on that? 
Oh, please do. This man pulled his vessel out of formation at the Battle of Sector A-4797 for no damned reason. There were sky pilot dogfights going on all around. We had our ships all lined in proper battle arrangement. And he opens a line. He exposed ten ships to Antarian courses. Good Lord, if it wasn't for Commander Warren sending the other ships in there, it might have been a cataclysmic defeat. How Bragg got behind our defenses has baffled me and will baffle every battle historian from now to eternity. So the man disobeys orders, asked Nancy, writing something on her clipboard. Ah, said Ross, shaking his head. Commander, said Kaczynski, SAV number four is transporting Henry Malvern, Milt Bennett, and two crewmen down to the surface. Good, he said, turning. Frank. Yo, said Muldoon from the seat. I want us underway immediately. Coils were already humming, John. Muldoon relaxed in his seat. Ross could never understand how Muldoon would get equally as emotional at Polonus as he would during a battle alert. We did get some displacement readings way out. There are energy lines becoming more intense and I don't know why. But you weren't concerned about those readings impairing coil performance, right? Polonus here, Commander said the computer in his compact speaker. Go. Commander, we have located ESS-27. Oh, that's not wonderful. Estimates would lend credence to the theory that Commander Bragg pursued an exact course between our vessel and the planet Axiom Roma 7. It may have sent an AC signal back toward the nebula. The displacement readings have aided his escape. Hiding, bastard. Now I know there are Interians aboard, said Lindy. Maybe, said Ross, watching the second SAV pass in the distance. Then he looked at Nancy again. Jack Bragg brought his entire crew down to Ras Algi 3. I don't understand. Well, he was supposed to be transporting support orders and foodstuffs to Outpost 16 in that region, the third planet. And the Rasalgi system is a planet where you can, let us say, uh, unwind anything goes. Oh, I remember my father mentioning that planet, said Nancy. Somebody from the faculty went there. We never understood as kids why our parents were laughing about it, I guess, and why it caused such a scandal at the Central Institute. So Bragg just took off. Foodstuffs had to be brought from two separate explorer ships. Command had to reformulate the orders for the outpost. You had a new crew on the outpost with no orders and a limited food supply. What happened to Bragg? Slap on the wrist. Bragg knows people, that's one thing I'll say about him, said Lindy. He makes friends easily and he can talk his way out of a coil implosion. People like Jack, but the man has no sense of responsibility. Tell me more. Ross held her wrist. Nancy, we're 21 days at maximum speed from the Nebula planet. You want to hear Jack Bragg stories? I'll tell you Jack Bragg stories. You haven't heard anything yet. Ross was surprised how fast Muldoon got them out of orbit. He stared at Baroma, still livid at Boosmith's stupidity. As the full battle alert tube flashed red above the walls, they veered away from the dusty planet and stars swung into view. Moments later, the coils hummed gently throughout the ship and they zoomed to breakaway speed. Maneuvering speed in six minutes, John, said Muldoon from propulsion. Acknowledge, Frank. Ross turned toward his side viewer. Rip. Yes, Commander, said the short-haired officer. Rip, I, uh, 
I want to wait. He left his chair and climbed the stairs to his left, moving across the grid to the communications station in the science alcove. Rip's intense brown eyes followed him. Rip, I want to send a message to Bragg. Do you think that's a smart idea? Asked Lindy at his post to the right. Explain. Well, why let him know what we're doing? Ross shook his head. He'll know soon enough. I want him, and if there are Antarians on board, to sweat. Well, Antarians don't sweat, John. No, but they can be rattled sufficiently if provoked. I'm going to rattle them and hope they make a mistake. Uh, how do you want that message sent, John? Asked Rip. One of the section chiefs, Gil Webb, a black officer from Ross's home planet, came forward. Even though they had gone to the Altair Institute within years of each other, Ross had never met Webb until they served together during the war. They're accelerating, John. If we boot up the signal, they won't get it for days. I'm not talking about the signal strength as much as I am about content. Well, what do you suggest, Gilly? Boot it up. It's the best thing we can do. But if you want to upset those Antarians, send it in their native language. Yes! Ross's hatred of the Antarians overtook him like an ion storm wave. All we can hope for is a mistake or a delay. If they get there and find nothing, they'll leave. I'm not above making a little trouble. When he saw Nancy Burke taking more notes, he chuckled. I hope you have a strong hand. I do. Good. Polonis. Yes, Commander. Can you put my message into Antarian? I want Bragg and the rest of those bastards to know we're on to them. He winked at Gilly. Yes, sir. Give me the message and I will send it out in Antarian. Explorer Spaceship Commander speaking in Antarian. A little contradictory, wouldn't you say, Lindy? Yuck. The whole science section laughed. Ross moved down the stairs and back to his console chair. He sat for a few moments trying to compose his thoughts. It was important that he impart the seriousness of their heading toward the nebula planet and the probable use of force against Bragg and the Antarians. Okay, I'm ready, Polonis. It will go out in Antarian, John. Okay. He stood leaning slightly against the consoles. This is Commander John B. Ross of Explorer Spaceship 14. Now leaving the planet Axiom Baromer 7. To all Antarian personnel and officers, you are in direct violation of the Bilateral Withdrawal Treaty. You have commandeered a Galactic Command Explorer spaceship and face aggressive and potentially deadly consequences for this act. We are now in active pursuit of Explorer Spaceship 27. 16 command vessels and 42 fleet ships will soon be joining us. At this time, I would ask you to halt your course and no action will be taken against you or Commander Bragg. We will follow your course for the length of the signal boot. When we have determined it has reached ESS-27, the offer of amnesty will be rescinded. We would also warn you that your actions threaten an already unstable peace between our two peoples. Stop now and turn back, or continue and be destroyed. Ross, commanding 14. He returned to his seat. Lindy looked up at him from the side viewer and quietly applauded. Ross grinned. Bragg won't have any involvement if there are Antarians on that ship. They'll make all the decisions. If he's on his own, he'll be confused as hell and probably disappear somewhere, would be my feeling. I'd like to know more about this Bragg, said Nancy. You can put the whole bent on him. Just him, believe me, said Ross. Excuse me, John, said Rip. 
The message is encountering those waves of space-time displacement. Lindy looked up from his console. In the general direction of the nebula planet, it could be a gravity trough inside the nebula, but it looks like energy lines alluded to by Admiral Ebert. Will they get that message? Rip looked up from the console. Yes, sir, but they may have to uh, piece it together. Lieutenant Alvarez appeared on the screen from propulsion. We've hit maneuvering speed, cruising speed in 35 minutes. Thank you, Lieutenant. Ross turned to Nancy. Well, Nancy, this could prove to be the voyage of a lifetime. If we contact another form of intelligent life, the Zorka, you'll be there to bend it for history. I hope so, Commander. I hope so. Chapter 9 Ross kicked Pfeiffer below the knee, stunned the doctor, and knocked him to the mat. Pfeiffer tilted his head slightly. How did you do that? Motivation is the mother of inventive moves, doctor. Ross extended his hand and helped Pfeiffer to his feet. Good, next time I have a tournament, I think I'll bring Jack Bragg there just to motivate me. Ross's face tightened and moved toward the viewer. That reminds me. He pushed the code for Lindy's station. Lindy, seated in front of the console, swiveled his chair around and looked at Ross. Well, John, you look well-oiled. Melissa Schaefer gave him a towel. Did you survive? Well, I did. Pfeiffer smiled as he left the room. I'll be in the metafact, John. Ross wanted to ask him about Nancy. Lindy, what's the situation out there? Well, if you're wondering about Bragg, we have signals in the midst of that mess indicating they're preparing to send SAVs to the nebula planet's surface. Tell me about the linear energy. Why is it intensifying? asked Ross. I can't even tell you where it's coming from. It appears to have subdivided. Lindy studied one of the monitors. Take a look at this. Depicted view showed the four lines in black over the white overlay in the third sector. In prior readouts, the singular pulses had moved forward to form the energy line, pushing back across the sector. Octagon energy packets composed each line when Lindy enhanced the readings. If I could get a visual, the energy would be filtered green, but the readings extend past the gamma into an unknown area, maybe another dimension. The power in just those four lines is unbelievable. And now there are 26 sets in each line moving around the sector. Each has a width of 152 meters. How can that be natural? Just because we don't understand it doesn't make it absorb our origin. Ross dried his forehead with the towel. Then what is it? I don't know. I've never seen anything spread out like this, dividing perfectly. Just another one of those things that doesn't make any sense and one of the reasons they sent Ellison out here. The presence of the nebula without any gravitational attraction to the Algorian systems makes no sense scientifically. Then again, it's been so far out nobody's paid any attention to it. Well, Muldoon says the coils are okay. Well, it depends what you consider okay. Whatever is reaching back into space is affecting the coils. I think he means there's no apparent impairment. I do detect a change in the Eldridge wave ahead of us. The computers compensate so we don't notice it. Communications are real shoddy. We can barely monitor ESS-27, but I'm concerned. Why do we have to be this far out? And that damn brag, he sold out is what he did. No doubt about that. I'll contact you, John, if there's any change. Thanks, Lindy. 
Ross talked briefly with Alvarez, but excused himself and retraced Pfeiffer's trail to the Metafac. With a certain uneasiness, he crossed propulsion and entered the far corridor. Mary Kerensky in her red uniform was working out front. Dr. Kerensky! He always liked her sense of humor and was glad she was on this voyage. You mixing potions again? A month out from the mothership, we all need something exotic, she said. But how could I resist bringing my little black bag on ESS-14? Ross smiled. Where's Mike? He ran out of the training room. He said he'd be in his cabin, and don't start asking me about Nancy Burke. You know that's in Section 15. Until she releases the file, I can't say anything. Ah, said Ross, shaking his head. She checked a yellow chemical mixture against the light. You don't like not having the final say about everything, do you, John? You know me too well, Kerensky. Well, I should. We've served off and on since you were at the Altair, in your institute days, when nobody knew what the hell they were doing. Ross laughed. Well, that was before I even went to Markham. We ran the ship aground. Well, I know you did she said. I was supposed to be back home for the end of the year holidays, so we toasted in the new galactic gear on a maroon vessel in the middle of an uninhabited cloud cover. Fifteen trainees and eight Medifac staff. Yeah, warm brumac. By the time the supply vessels arrived, we had drained the ship's stores. I've never had a warm brumac since then, Kerensky. I was so sick. He talked with her for a few more minutes before heading down to the Medifac. Two crewmen were up front, and Nancy sat in a side room reading a book. Nancy. She looked up and smiled. Ross thought she looked better. How are you feeling? I'm good. Dr. Pfeiffer has performed his usual miracle, she said, raising the book. I'm studying the Antarian civilization. Ross looked across the screens. Interesting reading. Uh, even though the Antarians are our enemies, I still respect them. I knew the Antarians were the first genetically altered colonists, but I didn't realize it was their planet that changed things for the Antarians. Fields from that giant red star, very simply those who did not adapt, died. Ross nodded. Superior muscular structure, thin but strong. The white hair and those red eyes matches their sun, she said. What did you hear about Bragg and his merry men? They're on an SAV heading for the planet. I feel this Zorka body is something from the past, John, and I'm baffled about what could have happened to Ellison in that expedition party. More important is how what's coming from that nebula is beginning to affect the ship. Nancy, are you dying? She froze and her eyes filled. Well, uh, yes, to answer your question, I have recumbent altoric disorder. I don't know what that is. Ross clenched his fist behind his back. It can be explained as coming unglued. Normally the strands of duospinal base detach when replication takes place. Something has caused this acra enzyme to speed up, ripping apart the duospinal base instead of allowing another enzyme to replicate the base sequence. Now, other enzymes show up and get rid of the bad stuff and eventually parts of my body are overrun by the bad stuff. I can get acra therapy, but sooner or later Things will just shut down. I am so sorry, Nancy. Don't be. I've lived the way I've wanted to live, John. I have no complaints. And who knows, I may end up meeting the Zorka. With moist eyes, Ross nodded. 
This will go no further than our conversation. Oh, you bet your ass it won't. Listen, Pfeiffer said I'll be out of here in the next few days. Maybe I'll be well enough to witness this trip to the planet. If we're not under direct attack, what do you mean? My standing order to brag is to surrender ESS-27 or face engagement. She produced a bright glowing smile. I love it. In this age of sophistication and advancement, simple human greed still abounds. Bragg's middle name. Wait till I get my hands on him. That, yes? Well, you can fill in the blank. You're the bender. He held her hand. Let me know when you're up and about. I will, John. Thanks. With a half smile, he released her hand and left. Her impending death did not seem fair, and he did not understand what would cause such an ungluing of genetic material. He almost hoped that she would die in space, peacefully. Ross entered the external maintenance conveyor and moved up to the shuttle storage room. Once above, he quickly entered the shuttle and headed for the airlocks. He wanted to see this nebula from an unmagnified perspective. He closed his eyes and grinned about Kerensky and the warm Brumac. The shuttle rumbled, and the fields and the meandering river of Mark IV extended into his thoughts. When he opened his eyes, a magenta, frozen, gaseous swirl highlighted with brighter packed energy concentrations and a pink translucent wisp rose over the blue hull. Stars amidst dead space blackness shone through the thinner edges, but according to instruments, the nebula planet, four days away at emergency speed, was located in the upper rosy compact gaseous bulge. The proximity of the planet and its star system to a potential gravity trough seemed scientifically incongruous. Lindy had told him about the planetary readings. Minimal amounts of water, a thin oxygen layer, and a little methane were not exactly the signs of life. For a moment he looked toward the black starry night. Now the brightest stars, back toward the distant mothership, were dimmed. In his years with Galactic Command, he had never felt so remote from the people he knew. The increasing mystery and lack of information bothered him as he turned back to the nebula. In a few days, the nebula would overshadow the planet's sky, but Nancy Burke being cut down by a fatal illness before her time angered him. His thoughts spun back to Jack Bragg. This stunt finished him with command, unless the Antarians raised the level of Marquis, allowing Bragg to get away with it. He pictured Bragg years ago on the locus of an explorer spaceship, the name and classification number long forgotten. Bragg had always upset him. He took chances, bent the rules, and got away with it. Ross pushed the viewer button. Lindy, Gil Webb from his locust console came on screen. Hello, John. Gilly, give me a mag on that system. Ross turned the shuttle around on its track. You got it. Gilly was in the upper left corner, while the fuzzy image of ESS-27 and the rusty hue of the nebula planet and its white sun wavered on the screen. The glow from the deep magenta and pink gas contrasted against the planet's spherical green horizon. There it goes. The mag showed an indefinite image of the SAV leaving ESS-27 through its bay doors. Can't we adjust that picture, Gilly? John, the energy lines are affecting what we see here. This image may be a mess, but the only reason we're seeing it is because of elaborate Polonis adjustments. Jack Bragg. I should have had him nailed years ago. I heard he was involved in that planetary land deal that went sour, said Gil. I can't even remember the system. He was signing people up 
and the planet had toxic atmospheric levels. That was before the war. He visualized Bragg's chubby red face and thick mustache. His loud, obnoxious laugh resonated in Bross's ears. How much do you think they paid him, John? Unknown. Enough to make it worth his while to risk, or I should say ruin his career. Korea, that's a joke, said Gilly. Signal me at the earliest opportunity to sufficiently fire drag beams at that ship. He's all done, Gilly. Yes, sir. If we can fire. The readings from the nebula could radically alter everything. We could begin a forced beam bombardment, but he's not stupid. ESS 27's Perry fields have to be loaded. Anything we send out would go sailing away, probably into the nebula. My orders are to destroy that ship. Very simple. There'll be no request for surrender. He's crossed the line. Agreed. Leave him on the screen if you would. Gilly's image dissolved. Ross stared at ESS-27's fuzzy insignia and number. The thought of the Antarians with their red eyes circled in yellow and their tiny ears walking around freely on a command vessel rattled Ross. The Antarian warships, the torture and murder, would not easily go away. Images of their long spindly fingers and claws slicing up a captured crewman were vivid in his mind. He could hear the choppy, high-pitched, multisyllabic accent. Some English words had become altered over the centuries, which, with the odd cultural habit and lack of civility, only added to the friction between the two races. He cautioned himself from thinking of Antarians as anything less than human. Ross agonized as he sat back helpless while Jack Bragg and the Antarian barbarians now reached out for the first Zorker contact. Deals or impressions could be made by Bragg and the Antarians, affecting the galaxy for hundreds of years to come. He checked his ship's drac levels and grit his teeth. Bragg's only advantage was time. Chapter 10 Ross planted firmly in his console chair, scanned the fully staffed Locus, still on full battle alert. All drac beams were already aligned with ESS-27. ESS-27 sub-atmospheric vehicle static filled the frequency channels and made it impossible to monitor Jack Bragg. Despite the impact of the nebulous energy lines, Ross had sent out his sky pilot ships. He stood and spoke in an authoritative voice. Status sky pilot ships. Jim Morris, short brown hair slicked to the side, stood next to a bay console on Ross's viewer. Red tubes brightened along the walls. Ready for departure of eight additional ships on your order, Commander. Well, the order is given. The ships moved across the bay, coils humming loudly toward the airlocks. Ross checked the sky pilot ships already heading toward ESS-27. This would give him a total of 16 ships. He wondered why Bragg had not engaged in a similar action or increased drac intensity on ESS-27's weapons consoles. What is he doing, Polonis? Ross looked up at Lindy, ten meters away at his station. His second-in-command shrugged his shoulders. It is as if he were inviting an attack. Perhaps we should prepare for evasive action, John. They may have some Antarian weapons system we may not understand. There isn't a weapon system from the Antarians that I haven't faced. They have drac beams just like us. Only because they stole the technology from us, said Lindy, now appearing in the viewer's corner. Right. Ross put his hands on his hips. Polonis, do you view this as something new? 
Well, I don't like the way they're just sitting there, answered Polonus. Neither do I, said Ross, moving around his consoles and down a few steps from his area. He stood directly under the slope leading up to the main viewer. In less than three minutes, ESS-27 would be in range and he could open up the tracks. Commander, should we assemble a service party? Asked Lindy. One thing at a time, Lindy, said Ross, turning slightly from the main screen. Let's knock them out before... John! John! Shouted Muldoon for propulsion. On screen, the bearded Muldoon appeared in the lower corner. Commander, ESS-27 is preparing for breakaway. That is confirmed, John. Coils are intensifying. Damn him! Fire at him now! shouted Ross, even though he still had another two minutes before they were in range. The green drac beam spiraled away but dissipated before reaching Bragg's stolen ship, and the beam disintegrated into droplets, bouncing harmlessly like an ocean wave off the opposing ship's blue hull. Ross, his hands clenched, remained in front of the screen and continuously cursed Bragg, but it was too late. Explorer Spaceship 27 slid harmlessly out of orbit. Well, where can he go? asked Ross, and he ran back to the consoles. The monitor traced ESS-27's movement across the screen's yellow grid. He's going into that nebula, isn't he? He sure is, said Lindy. He's heading directly in, John. You're kidding. That's suicidal. Those readings are off the scale. Maybe he knows what's in there. Ross raced up to the science section. I don't see how you can navigate in there, said Lindy. Well, the instruments would be affected, said Polonus. We are already experiencing difficulty and are adjusting. And John, the packets continue to divide exponentially again. Hundreds of lines in each of the four areas. Ross returned back to the viewer. Bragg was still at maneuvering speed, but moving away from the planet. I'm detecting gravity and time displacement from inside that nebula, said Gil Webb. At irregular intervals, as if a gravity trough or even a compacted star were being turned off and on inconsistently, which is quite impossible. Jim, bring back the sky pilots, ordered Ross. Yes, sir. Lindy, you can assemble that surface party now, said Ross, glancing down at the roster on Lindy's screen. Ross grinned at his friend. I see you're one step ahead of me. I have to stay one step ahead of the master. Well, if I were the master, I wouldn't have let that ship get away, said Ross, shaking his head. Maybe they know something we don't. They must know something we don't about that nebula. That is a distinct possibility, said Polonus. Heading straight into the nebula is not a prudent course of action. When did Jack Bragg ever do anything prudent? Prepare for descent to the planet's surface, Lindy, he said, looking one more time at ESS-27 on the forward screen. Let's see what's really down there. Chapter 11. Ross, in a glossy brown terrain suit, sat with Lindy, Gil Webb, and three people from the science section, as well as five of Kuczynski's crewmen. Kuczynski was ordered to stay aboard ESS-14 because of the full battle alert. Nancy Burke, her medical status questionable, asked to come along and granted the request. The small ship bounced along the upper air current soon after being captured by the planet's gravity. Within the nebula light, the planet's numerous mountain ranges and small bodies of water looked rusty. Even the white star was tinged to a purple-red tint. Ross knew he needed answers on the planet, but he feared Bragg might bring ESS-27 back to the planet. 
On the screen, ESS-27 neared the massive gaseous expanse. Nixing Bragg from his thoughts was a smart idea, and he focused on the present mission. The landing team would search the Nebula Planet outpost and find out what happened to the research party and Dr. Ellison. Lindy, originally, perhaps thousands of years ago, did this planet support more extensive life, like evolved life forms? I think if we study the moisture content of the soil, we would discover a former ocean area. If the temperature were raised, say, 40 degrees, we might see water. Microbial content in the soil would indicate a marginal life expanse here. I don't see anything remaining in the soil, John. Remnants of forests, things like that. Polonus, what do you think? As Ross listened to the computer elaborate on Lindy's thesis, mostly agreeing with it, he stared out the window. If Ellison had been brought with others to examine the dead Zorka and the nebula readings, why would he suddenly disappear? Readings consistently showed no advanced life on this planet. Where did the Zorka come from? About 15 minutes later, at the 10,000 meter level, the SAV passed over the brown, sharp-edged ridges and fallen rock escarpments of a massive rift valley. Huge, dusty wind swirls burst across the endless flattened landscape and up the mountain edges traced against the deep-hued sky. No sign of vegetation or animal life appeared on the scans. At a lower altitude, the outpost appeared over the jagged rocks. On an alluvial plain, amidst the rock and pebble debris, elongated alabaster bubble enclosures connected by the tube tunnels were constructed by advanced parties years ago. The shells reflected the distant sun's light into glistening clusters. Beyond those three enclosures, a tower with a large white disc antenna sat silently on an adjacent knoll. Near the antenna, a starlight converter station and water plant boarded the hill. Polonus automatically put out another signal to the base personnel, but as expected, no one answered. Because of the number of boulders and smaller stones strewn across the landscape, Ross opted a vertical descent. The tiny ship stirred up the dust as it rocked onto the surface. Polonus insisted that detailed readings be taken before they disembarked. Scans showed Bragg had landed a ship next to a line of tracks leading to the first enclosure. No proof of more extended interior involvement existed. Polonus found remnants of other vessel landings about a kilometer away. According to Lindy, the soil impressions matched a freighter configuration. Fully suited with platinum helmets and black-tinted transparency secured, Ross led them down the SAV's corrugated ramp. As he moved across the loose dirt into a lower gravity, he squinted at the little piercing sun and adjusted the shading ration on his transparency. But as he followed Lindy and the others toward the enclosures, he looked upward and wondered how the luminescent nebula would appear at night. They waited while Polonus linked from the ship to a portable center on Lindy's back. His second-in-command took readings outside the enclosure. Bragg's imprints were everywhere, but Ross fumed when Polonus told him about the Antarian presence. Let's get inside. Ross led them into a sunlit enclosed portico. The outside locks were secured and he removed his helmet. How many Antarians, Polonus? John, Bragg was accompanied by four Antarians, no other humans. It would appear they moved freely throughout the enclosure. Ross tightened his brow. What did they want here? 
Polonis told him the newest readings of scattered genetic material indicated an original research party presence here at least three months ago. Yet, command never received a distress beacon, and an absence of data within the settlement computers hinted at sabotage. Ross removed his terrain suit and walked around in his blue fatigues and white shoulder compact along the tinted span. The transparency tempered the nebula and the corridor sunlight, brighter than a full moon on Earth, across the empty labs and offices along the wide hall. Why did Jack return here with the Antarians? asked Ross. Several minutes passed without anyone providing a clear answer. Commander, said Polonis on his compact, the distress beacon is still working within the computer. It was severed at the antenna some time ago. Well, that explains why we didn't hear a call for help, said Ross. We need to get out to that antenna. Why would they put on the distress beacon if there was nothing wrong? Asked Nancy as she entered the lab. The distress signal comes on automatically, Nancy, if the computer archives have not been activated for 72 hours. The computer begins asking personnel via the console monitors if there is a problem. And then step by step, the signals are placed at a low range frequency into the immediate area. The distress beacon is activated after 24 hours of searching. It repeats ad infinitum. So they could have already left, said Nancy. Well, that's exactly what happened, except someone did not want that beacon to extend into deep space, and they cut it, said Ross, putting his hands on his hips. What about the original outpost people? Neither the outpost vessel or the original freighter sent out to retrieve plant personnel are within the immediate sector, and readings through the nebula are impossible. Readings to ESS-27 aren't that great either, John, said Lindy. Our friendly energy packets are raising havoc. Polonis, said Ross as he led them back to the main enclosure. When was the data pulled out of the computer cells? Unknown. So we don't know, said Lindy. Whether it was Bragg who emptied the cell? Correct, answered Polonis. Ross initiated a thorough four-hour search through all three enclosures. He found the outpost party had left quickly. Drinks remained in the coolers, foodstuffs all stored, beds unmade, and evidence of half-completed games on the reactivated recreation area monitors. When the search was winding down, the sun loomed close to the distant mountains and the nebula grew brighter. Ross was mesmerized by the brilliant star backdropped in the violet-hued nebula just above the angled brown peaks. He turned to Lindy. Let's go over this again. They found the Zorka body and they get the readings. So they call command. Command sends out Ellison. Then Ellison and his people in a relief freighter vanish. Hauser and Chu. Kuczynski's security men, silver and black uniforms, passed a slow-moving Nancy Burke around the corner. Sir, said Chu. Suit up again. Polonis will direct you to the launch area of Dr. Ellison's transport. Follow Polonis's instructions and then proceed to that antenna shack and find out who cut that antenna. As the two security men hurried to the forward area, Ross helped Nancy Burke down the corridor and worried about whether he had made the correct decision to bring her along. They reached a domed recreation area at the end of the third enclosure just after sunset. She rested on a small black reclining couch covered by the nebula's ubiquitous light through the curved transparency. I've never seen anything like this, she said, looking up. What is the scientific explanation of all this? Ross furrowed his brow as Lindy approached. Well, that's one of the conundrums.
Well, nebulae form from the remnants of exploded stars, said Lindy. But this is an odd one. Time and gravity displacements are periodic, not like the typical rapid angular momentum of a compacted star. Like something inside that nebula is being turned off and on. Then we have these energy packets subdividing and moving back around the sector. I've never seen or heard anything like that either. Speculation? Lindy chuckled, but his face assumed a seriousness Ross was not accustomed to seeing, and he looked upward as he spoke. This thing has the potential to surround us. I mean, all of Galactic Command. Well, then what is it? He shook his head. I don't know, and neither does Polonis. We may have to go in there and find out. Ross stared at the nebula for the longest time, and then strayed back to Nancy. Sorry for that high-level conference. What do you have so far? asked Nancy, taking out her clipboard. Ellison's ship left rather quickly. He knew something. Ross's compact beat. John, this is Polonis. We have something significant out of the antenna. Uncompact. He looked closely at a graphic of a red and yellow tapered rope-clustered image. Well, what in the hell is that? Dural spinal basis, replied Lindy, but not human. That is correct, Lindy, said Polonis. nitrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus. There are a higher number of spinal intertwines, seven full twists on the base, and humans have five. So you're saying that the Zorka disconnected that antenna? Yes, answered Polonis. Well, how convenient, said Nancy. Well, it would appear that way, replied Ross. His compact beeped again with a signal coming in from the ship. Lindy expanded the Polonis report. Now, John, each molecule of this base on this image has over 150 million twists. 50 millions more than... Hold on, Lindy. Hold on. Ross. Commander, this is Alvarez. Her milky image prompted Ross to switch to voice signal. These readings are unacceptable. The energy packets. Commander Bragg's vessel has gone out of range into the nebula. Destroyed? No, just out of range, sir. We've been making attempts to go beyond, but the packets are causing interference. Now, I'm aware of that problem, Commander. Have Muldoon prepare to get underway. Then you think this civilization is responsible, asked Nancy. You think the Zorker is beyond the nebula, said Ross as Lindy nodded. Those packets are all just too convenient. We can't let Jack Bragg and the Antarians go in there as representatives of the human race to this new life form. Nancy stood, the strain evident in her eyes, and she walked up to Ross. John, you and I have known each other for a long time, and don't take what I'm about to say the wrong way. I only hope that Ellison and the outpost personnel made the first contact, said Ross, turning to her. You were about to lambaste me, Nancy? Well, I'm not a scientific expert, but if the Zorka were hostile, they would have just attacked this outpost. Maybe they did. He looked at the Polonis readout and the expansion of the linear packets back toward the heart of the galaxy. We can't even warn command. I need to know what's causing those readings and why that thing is spreading out. I don't think you understand what I'm saying. What if this is an Antarian deception? Ross looked up from his readout, taking her comments seriously for the first time. What do you mean? You have the Zorka genetic material. Everything else has been stripped. Don't you find that odd? Ross tilted his head. Are you saying it's fake? I just think we should double-check everything when it comes to the Antarians. Polonis, verify material. 
artificially constructed was minute, the result of an abrasion or cut. So, what do we have? asked Ross. Brad comes down here to clear the computer cells and then leaves with the Antarians into the nebula. My guess is the Zorker were here at some time and are inside the nebula. I agree, said Nancy. But while Command is busy sending Allison out here, drooling at the prospect of the Zorker, the Antarians are up to something with the Zorker. Ross knew if Nancy's theory had any credibility, it was already too late. Lindy, I need to know what the hell's going on inside that nebula. John, I don't know. Nancy shuffled to her left and sat on the wall of the long botanical garden. She steadied herself by gripping the wall edges tightly. Ross pushed the compact channel. Report back to SAV, Chew. Yes, sir. All right, let's think this out. As Ross gestured with his hands, Nancy dropped to the floor. He rushed forward, but she was unconscious. He put his ear to her chest. Still breathing. Lindy, get Pfeiffer on the channel. Gilly, over here. I need to get her back to the ship. Bring the SAV directly to the airlocks. Yes, sir. He looked at Nancy's smooth white face. Her cold hand reminded him that death was not too far away. He remembered her before the war, when she had dark black hair and her face was animated and round. Nancy Burke was always so full of life, joking and making him laugh. He looked up at Lindy. Where the hell is Pfeiffer? They're getting him, John. He lifted Nancy from the floor and headed down the empty enclosure corridors toward the airlocks. Ross alternated glances between her placid face, bathed in the nebula's magenta glow, and the nebula itself. Somewhere inside the prodigious gaseous swirl, Jack Bragg transported Antarians on a command explorer spaceship. The airlock doors opened and he looked into the SAV. He carried Nancy forward and gently set her body on the padded bench. The speaker sounded. Viper. Mike, where the hell have you been? Tending to a patient, John. Make sure she is warm. She should never have gone down there. Lindy wrapped a body monitor around her arm. In place and on channel, Ross helped with the blanket as the airlock doors closed and Gilly moved the SAV away from the enclosure. Well, what do we do? Nothing. Keep her warm and get her back to the ship. Mike, come on. John, sit tight. Not much I can do from up here. Ross shook his head and took his seat with everyone else as Gilly announced their vertical ascent. The SAV rose upward above the settlement and shot into the atmosphere. Ross pinched the bridge of his nose. Nancy was nestled between the red restraining belt and a gray thermal stitch blanket. The bands of the wavy nebula light flickered over her face, and all he could think about was getting his hands around Jack Bragg's neck. And what of Nancy's talk of an Antarian deception? The venture into the nebula was probably the final desperate act of the lost Antarian cause and linked directly to the Zorka. Commander Ross must deal with Jack Bragg, a rogue commander in a runaway ESS ship, while still a distance from the nebula at the edge of the galaxy. Being on such an extended voyage, it's imperative to manage the ship's personnel in an area of uncharted space so far from the mother ship and galactic command. Next week gets action-packed and exciting to say the least. I'm Robert P. Fitton, stepping into the turbo and heading and heading for the Locus. Join me next time for episode 3 of The Nebula Planet by Robert P. Fitton.
All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fitinbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.